You're listening to In Her Voice, a podcast brought to you by Women in Hollywood. I'm your host, Melissa Silverstein, and this podcast is dedicated to supporting and amplifying the voices of women who work in the global entertainment business. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Today's guest is Aisha Harris. She is the author of the newly published book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And she is also the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. So Aisha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. What made you decide to that this was the time for you to write a kind of pop culture memoir? One of the things that I've really loved about being a, a host on Pop Culture Happy Hour is the chance to you know, work with people who I've admired for years. It's fun. It's conversational. But, you know, when I was first starting my career, I was a writer primarily. And I really wanted to get back into writing and writing deeply and thoughtfully and as long, not as long as I wanted, but like much longer than I usually can. <laughs> and because what I what I do is pop culture, it just felt like really natural to be able to sort of use this opportunity to write a book by writing it in essay form and focusing on sort of my personal interests. And, you know, I think that one of the themes of the book is that pop culture, sure, you can say it's not quite as important as politics are, or it's not about the presidential race. It's not about that and all those other things. But I do think that we do take it so personally these days. We wear our pop culture loves and allegiances on our sleeves, in our social media, in the way we talk about things in our lives. And I wanted to really connect those dots and be able to write something that was both personal to me, but I think something that a lot of people would also relate to in these times when so much of us care a lot about pop culture. I mean, yeah, politics is super important. And for those of us who pay attention to it, it's, you know, in our everyday lives, but a lot of people don't pay attention to politics on a day-to-day basis, but they do pay attention to pop culture on a day-to-day basis. So in actuality, in some ways, pop culture has just a wider influence on people's day-to-day lives. So I'd like to know your definition of what being a pop culture critic means in today's world. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there are still people and a lot of writers and I have colleagues who mostly focus on one thing, whether it's film, music, TV, in part because there is so much now of each thing. There's so much music, there's so much pop TV, so many movies. It's really hard to keep track of those things. But I think to be a pop culture critic means you have to kind of be familiar with all of those things and everything that's happening. And I think that That's a natural extension in part, because when you think about pop culture, it's not, these things are not really siloed anymore anyway. Like movies and TV have now blurred the lines completely in terms of you have people like filmmakers making, you know, really great TV shows and you have vice versa. You have Broadway shows being adapted into movies and movies being, and and movies being adapted from Broadway shows. it's all very cross-pollinated. And I think that it's, you just kind of have to be aware of everything as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, a few, a while ago, I kind of gave up on trying to watch everything and see and see everything. It's Me just, too. It's impossible, right? Impossible. And it makes you anxious no because you're like, wait, I didn't see this. Wait, I didn't see. And then you're less like, it. you just have to go 
that's it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've had the same experience where like at the end of the year, you're kind of doing a scramble to try and catch up with everything you missed. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, and, and, it's true. And then people tell you about things that you've never heard of. And you're like, yes. wait, what? How is yeah. it possible? Like I follow this stuff religiously, like emails all day long, Twitter, whatever. And you're like, that just completely passed me by. And it's frustrating because you're like, hmm, okay, missed that one. And I want to just elaborate for you, for you to talk a little bit about what you focus on in the book is being a black critic is, you know, it is a lot, I guess, in some <laughs> respects. <laughs> yes. um, I'm not, you know, a person of color, but your essays, you know, talking about that and, and talking about, you know, what it means to deal with uh, black art that you don't love. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about maybe the responsibility you feel in and yeah. being a black critic yeah i mean this is the second chapter in the book and you know every critic regardless of their background is going to be they bring whoever they are to it you know and and i think to pretend as if we don't have our own biases and, and predilections and whatever that's that's not true We're, we it's impossible to not do that but i think it's especially difficult when you are a black critic or like a critic from any sort of marginalized group because for so long we've had to operate from this idea this mindset of scarcity of there not being enough representation or different enough representation on screen and when you are operating from that mindset it makes it harder to really evaluate the work itself that does come your way um, and so in that chapter, I really wanted to sort of get at this idea of the sort of uh, hurdles you have to deal with when you are a Black critic reviewing Black art, and also kind of trace a history of how I really do think that, you know, things are not perfect by any means. There are still a lot of issues with representation in film and TV. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be critical or shouldn't be concerned, especially with the the writer strike and the the SAG strike happening now, where you know often the first people to be directly affected by these sorts of things are the people who, women, people of color, queer people, whatever. But I, I also wanted to say we are at a at least before this strike was happening, we were at a point where there was so much black content. You have so many black filmmakers. Ava DuVernay, uh, Barry Jenkins, uh, Janixa Bravo, like all these varied and different kinds of voices who are doing really interesting things and doing things on a grander scale than Black filmmakers have ever been able to do before. And that means that I think we can allow ourselves as Black critics to be a little bit less concerned about the things that we don't like and being open about the things that we don't like or don't think are particularly good. And oftentimes that comes with you know everyone's a critic <laughs> and especially in this age when we're not just writing reviews for a paper or for a publisher but we're also interacting with people online and we can get direct feedback that can be an interesting time I recently reviewed The Little Mermaid the new remake and I was very critical of it even though it did have a black mermaid black Ariel played by Halle Bailey and I got people in my, my my mentions, you know, calling me anti-Black, upset with me that they weren't going to make more movies like it because if people aren't nice to the movie. 
And I really just in that in that chapter really wanted to talk about how we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I also but I also understand the impulse because again, for so long we haven't had those opportunities. But I want us to give ourselves a little bit more grace and a little bit more leeway to be honest because mm-hmm. black art to me deserves to be held up from a rigorous point of view and not sort of treated with kids gloves. Yeah. I think it's all about the conversation related to critical mass and my beginning of the the experience with critical mass is about women in politics where it was always kind of like what was she wearing you know when Hillary Clinton ran it was like what's she wearing what's her hair and all that kind of stuff and now mm-hmm. we really don't get that with women politicians cuz there's just enough of them that you know you can't just talk about their suit i mean how many fucking articles were written about Hillary Clinton's suits you know, so it's just like, so right? So it's like, it's yeah. great that we don't have to care about that. There are so many shitty women politicians. There are many great mm-hmm. ones. And you get to a point where you're just like, I don't have to, I don't have to put on, you know, like you said, the kind of kid gloves anymore. It's time for us to just really try to evaluate the art and not the effect on on the industry consumerism kind of thing. And it's, but exactly. it's, but it's also- it makes you nervous too in some way because you're like I mean we're all one one person doing it but you're also like I don't want to do anything that is going to cause a movie not to be made <laughs> yeah and you know I I do I will say that like I take a different approach when I'm dealing with a first-time filmmaker or those who are not on the scale of like a Barry Jenkins you know right. or Jordan Peele because right. I think that 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 is something that I have more power potentially right over than you know the next big blockbuster that doesn't mean I'm going to reserve my criticism but it does mean I might tweak my criticism a little bit uh, a bit a little bit more or just not review something that I really don't like that's smaller because I'm just like I don't want to I don't want to upset this person's possible career path you know totally agree with you do you feel that you can separate the art from the artist that whole conversation (laughs) uh so yeah I mean one of the other essays in wannabe is sort of about that to some extent and really about stand-up and fandom and a facet of that is this idea that we kind of wrap our we can often get upset about our artists who we love because they do something maybe off camera or behind the scenes that doesn't align, or they say something that doesn't align with our personal values. My book came out before the whole Taylor Swift, Matt Healy stuff was happening, but it's very, that is very apt for what I write about because that was a lot of Taylor Swift fans being like, well, Matt Healy, he might be a racist or he might be this or that. And he said things in the past. And I think that there are certain artists for me, at least, who it's impossible to separate. I, I don't even know if it's true to completely separate ever. And I don't think we should want that because it, what is an artist, just like I said, you know, critics bring themselves into their reviewing, artists bring themselves into their art, even if it's not as like explicitly obvious. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that it's always something that we should take into account. And I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how we treat Jonathan Majors going forward because he's someone who I think is a perfect case study right now for, you know, what do we do about separating the art from the artist? He has a movie 
that I saw at Sundance this past uh, winter that I don't know if it's going to see the light of day (laughs) outside of that um, magazine dreams. And at the time, I wrote about how fantastic he was, and I think he was fantastic. But also, that role was about him being the sort of confronting this idea of the Black brute, and he is like a bodybuilder. And I think that, you know, it's kind of for what he's been accused of doing, there's a very fine line there between the character he was playing and what he's been accused of doing. So I don't think separating art art from the artist is like, it's not the kind of question that I'm interested in. It's more about how much of the art are we attributing to the artist's persona? Mm-hmm. I mean, sense. the conversation was, you know, more about Woody Allen and Polanski, and now it's more about like Ezra Miller and Jonathan Majors and and Johnny Depp. So it's generationally skipped, and you know they miscalculated related to Ezra Miller. I mean, I didn't see that movie, so I don't know if the movie was bad. It sounded not great, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. but you know, people. People are so so online and know everything. It's just like, you can't escape it. All right, so let's move into important things. Barbie. <laughs> Barbie. <laughs> Barbie. I haven't seen it, so caveat, I haven't seen it yet, but I've fucking read everything. And you just wrote a piece about Barbie. And is there anything in particular, without spoiling it, that mm. you know you talked about in your piece about how it can be basically shilling for the corporation and also at the same time a meta commentary on kind of the patriarchy and gender roles and stuff like that do you want to get into it a little bit yeah I mean I'm not going to spoil it too much or at all but I (laughs) it's funny because first of all I I kind of admire how hyped people are for this in a weird way I think yes part of it is the whole Barbie of it all but I think Greta Gerwig herself just has so much goodwill after Lady Bird and, and Little Women. And for me, at least, I would have never thought that I would be excited about a Barbie movie. Me and neither. Greta, and because of Greta Gerwig. Right. Yeah. But because of Greta Gerwig's involvement, and then, of course, you have the cast, I'm like, okay, maybe this would be good. So I've seen it, and I still think it's really... it 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 lives up to my expectations, at least on the front of it being entertaining. Mm -hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I was laughing throughout almost all of it. Ryan Gosling is a national treasure. Put him in all the comedies, please. It's, and it's, it's just really, really fun. There's musical numbers, which I was not expecting. And I love a musical. Give me more musicals. I know you do like a musical. (laughs) I love those, but I I do think it's tough because something like, I kept getting kind of flashbacks of the Lego movie and how great that was and how we were all just like kind of shocked how good it good it was. And the difference here is that Lego does not really come with all the baggage that Barbie does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't think there was ever, forgive me if I'm wrong, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was some like big culture war about Legos at some point, but Barbie is a whole different sort of beast. And yeah. I think that the movie... The only way the movie can could really work at all or like exist was they had to sort of have their cake and eat it too, and that it's both a celebration of Barbie and Mattel, but also trying to really kind of poke fun at and critique the world that Barbie has created in terms of unrealistic expectations around 
beauty expectations for women and blah, 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 blah. And I think there's only so far you can go when the company you are ostensibly taking to task is also the one writing the checks. But I think it does as best as you could hope for it. So, you know, if I had to rank Greta Gerwig movies at this point, I'd say Lady Bird is my favorite movie of maybe the last decade, for, like one of my favorites for sure. And then I put maybe Barbie ahead of Little Women, but I think Little Women is a better movie than Barbie, but I had even more fun at Barbie than I did at Little Women. I mean, <laughs> it's so interesting. Like she's on her third movie and she's made good movies. And, you yeah. know, this is something that people don't always do getting bigger budgets. I've been reading a lot about the tracking and they really don't know how to track this movie. It's so interesting too. Yeah, so it's like yeah. at first, like six weeks ago, it was like 40 or 50 and then it was like 85. Now it's over 100. And they're like thinking that it could hit 150. And I'm just like $150 million on opening weekend for a Greta Gerwig movie. The girl did Mumblecore not too long ago, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, I have so much ambivalence about Barbie. But again, the Greta Gerwig goodwill and the fact that, you know, it seems from my vantage point, which I haven't seen it as of this recording is like she just takes it and just rips it and and gives us yeah. gives us a whole new look at things that we might have you know had had issues with and and gives us a little bit more comfort about our issues with it but also makes it a good time and i just appreciate that so much and i think people need it i think why you know why is barbie resonating okay because people my age would go People your age would go, people younger would go. My nieces are tickets yeah. ready with her friends. So it's like also, but it, it's also like the world is pretty shitty now. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, we can have a good time and we can take our family and we can have a good time and not feel like, oh, crap, the president's about to get indicted again for a couple Yeah, of well, I will say there are some moments in the movie that sort of, are very it's a good time but it is also it is very very bluntly and unsubtly tackling you know politics uh, including things that yeah yeah so it, it it won't completely it's i wouldn't call it complete escapist sort of thing but yes it is it is not it's not oppenheimer i wasn't trying to say it was completely <laughs> escapist i was trying to say that you yeah you know it's like the spinach when the kids like i don't want to eat spinach right and you're just sure, like sure. yeah I'm going to get my feminism and other people who don't even think about feminism will get their feminism and then they're fuck the patriarchy stuff in pink. Yes. Which yes, has been, you absolutely. know, controversy of our lives, right? Well, and, you know what? I feel like it's the Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde was a, a hit and yep. that's very pink. And now we have... Mm-hmm. It, it, 100% <laughs> true. You are 100% <laughs> true. Okay. So we have hit our time. But I'm just going to bring back the book again. It's Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And you can listen to Aisha on the Pop Culture Happy Hour on NPR. We love NPR. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to share with a friend or better yet, follow us on Spotify and give us five stars or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Spreading the word really helps us reach as many people as possible. You can also subscribe to the Substack for the Women in Hollywood weekly newsletter 
of all content buying about women that is opening and streaming. You can sign up directly at womenandhollywood.com. In Her Voice is produced by Leonie Marsh. This is a Women in Hollywood Productions podcast. I'm Melissa Silverstein. Until next time, goodbye.